0: Two weeks into conference play and everything has gone crazy. Welcome back to the A-10 Talk podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Sam Basil, and alongside me, Daniel Frank. Daniel, how are you doing tonight?
1: Happy to be back on the podcast. Happy that we have eight, uh, 14 men and 14 women's teams that are healthy and playing A-10 hoops right now. Can't complain. Ready to talk some hoops tonight.
0: Yeah, and you know we're two months away from March, but you know I think this conference has already experienced uh, a decent amount of madness in these past couple of weeks, especially uh, in the last three, four days or so. So we're going to be getting into all of that, talking about our favorite moments from the week, uh, some projections as to what these results might mean for the rest of the season, uh, as well as a preview of what, what what we want you to check out as A-10 fans and as lovers of college basketball this upcoming weekend. So starting off, Tuesday and Wednesday of this week was a pretty big Uh, slate for A-10 basketball and there were some pretty crazy results the biggest attention drawing game uh, this week was no doubt St. Bonaventure versus LaSalle for a multitude of reasons number one this is the first time St. Bonaventure has hit the court since I think December 13th Uh, they they had a really tough time staying staying negative and being healthy in regards to you know all this 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 very uh, fluid changing COVID-19 situation with all these new variants and, you know, coming out of that long pause, it looked like they were really struggling against LaSalle. Uh, they, they ended up coming back and getting the win in overtime, but you know, at at some points in the game, they, they were down as much as 10 points. Daniel, were you, were you shocked by this or, or was this something that you kind of expected for a team coming out of such a long pause?
1: I mean, it's hard to say because usually teams that from what we saw last year that came off of COVID pause did have less than ideal first games back. Um, That said, I was watching the GWVCU game and when that got to halftime, I was ready to turn it off. I was like, please, anything other than this and saw (laughs) the bonus score. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And, you know, LaSalle was up and then I was like, "Okay, we'll watch this. And I figured, okay, Bon is going to. You know, basically, because there were two good games that were happening simultaneously. UMass at the time was up on Davidson, and then once the second half started, Davidson got together and won going away. I just kind of assumed that's what Bona was going to do, and then it never happened. And LaSalle built, like, a 12-point second-half lead, and I was like, what the hell is happening? And then Bona, late, late, finally got it reeled back in and forced overtime. LaSalle had a good look, though, at the end of regulation, um, but – you know, once they got to overtime, the Bonnies finally kind of put their, you know, put it away, put it out of reach. But credit LaSalle. I mean, I think, you know, LaSalle played their best game and they gave the Bonnies I think, their best shot. Yeah. And, you know, I,
0: I, I think you bring up a good point in the fact that uh, the Bonnies did get it together by the end of the game. You know, they came back. They did win. It wasn't the prettiest game. Uh, but I think. No matter what, I don't think it's time for St. Bonaventure fans to be panicking just yet, especially with the fact that, you know, Kyle Lofton is back from injury. And, you know, as sloppy as the Bonnies played, they still had their their starting five rotation that they've been working on for years now. And I think that it still has a chance to really make some noise in the A-10. But, you know, looking ahead to their next couple games, you know, yes, their pause is over. But even so, it takes time for a team to really get back up to speed after not only not being able to play for so long, but if you look at the if you look at some of the reports, especially from A10 Talks own Jack Milko, it was hard to get a full practice in in that in that month long period. So their next two games, uh, this is being reported on Thursday the 13th. So on Friday the 14th they're playing VCU in in New York, and they're playing Dayton on Tuesday in Dayton. As good as the same as as good as the Bonnies are, um, especially with how how much VCU has really progressed so
1: far this year is, is this going to be a pretty tough stretch for St. Bonaventure? I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, I think the thing that we've learned about the A-10, and we say this many years, but I believe this probably to be true more this year than any other year. There's really not a night off in this league anymore. I mean, a team you used to be able to look at and be like, huh, that's a win. Like Fordham is now all of a sudden sole possession of third place. And I know we're going to talk about your Rams here in a minute, Sam, but I mean, yeah, that Duquesne win probably – or Duke game should probably be a win for the Bonnies. Next game after that, though, they go to Mason. On the road, I mean, that's not a cakewalk. And, you know, I, I mean, it, then you just get to the meet of conference play by the time you're in mid-January, late January. You know, I mean, at, at this point in the conference schedule – most teams are going to give you a tough outing. I think that's what we've seen from Davidson's own resume the last couple of games where you know, they got pretty tough outings from, from a good, from not a great, but a, a decent UMass team, you know, that is off to a disappointing startup on the whole though. I think that's just indicative of what we're going to see in the Atlantic 10 this year. It's been very entertaining. And so
0: you mentioned that you, you, you turned off that VCU George Washington game in disgust on, on Tuesday, but from what you did get to see, what about VCU do you
1: think could be such a problem for St. Bonaventure tomorrow? You know, it's interesting. I I don't want to sit here and not give VCU any credit for what they did to GW. The problem that I had watching that GW game was I didn't think that VCU honestly even played that well, which could be a problem in and of itself for the Bonnies, because VCU may feel like they didn't have their best game against GW, and especially in the second half, let GW get way too close. I think GW got it like only like 15 points. But given that they were up like 35 points on GW on point. They should not have let GW get anywhere within a mile of, of them in the second half. Um, and I know that's been a point of emphasis for Mike Rhodes as well, getting leads, but then maintaining leads. Um, and I think that's definitely something that they're going to be looking, you know, they're going to have a mission when they play the Bonnies. I don't think they're going to be satisfied by any means. And Ace Baldwin, you know, now that, now that he's back from injury, I mean, he's been, he's been pretty great. Uh, what do you like out of him? Oh, he, I mean, he, he said it all. I mean, he had what, 16 points against UW. I mean, he was just the go-to guy of, of the offense. I mean, when they would, not that it happened often not of the points they split up, but when they would, you know, need late in the shot clock kind of situation, he's the guy that just, he was like, I'll step up here. This is my moment. I'm going to just make sure this possession is not empty. Um, and he's a good defender as well. He really just does it all for the Rams right now.
0: Yeah, 16 points, six rebounds, four assists. So, you know, as, as much as we, we thought that the, this was going to be a transition year for VCU, I mean, they've still, got some, they've still got some serious hoopers on that squad.
1: VCU's yet to have a transition since they joined the A-10, I think. I mean, they've never had a down year.
0: So, moving on, uh, kind of moving back a little bit as well. Last time we were on this, we had this podcast, we were talking about, uh, as sort of a preview, George Mason scheduling their game against Kansas. Uh, you know, that was kind of a, in, in this season, you know, we've seen so far a lot of great, you know, last minute scheduling moves by a lot of coaches. I think another notable example uh, that I love seeing this year uh, was St. Louis taking on, uh, taking on and beating by just one point Iona. I thought that was a great pickup for both schools in the sense that St. Louis got the, you know, play against a guarantee an almost guaranteed tournament team, considering how good Iona is in the Mac and Iona, you know, St. Louis might not be a tournament team this year, but they're playing, you know, in a conference that's it's a bit better than the MAC and they're getting to play against, you know, uh, an established, a very solid program in St. Louis. So, another perfect example, George Mason against number 9 Kansas. They lost 76-67 in Kansas, but Daniel, what positives can you take away from this game?
1: I think there were there was a tremendous amount of growth that that came from this game. George, May, it was interesting. Mason only had eight available players. For this game due to a COVID outbreak in the team, which later caused them to have almost a month off, which they're still currently on the tail end of until they finally play again on Monday against GW. Um, but, and we found this out 30 minutes before game time, but they were going to be down a number of players who had made the trip, including Malik Henry um, and Otis Frazier, who have both played significant minutes as Josh Oduro's backups in the last several games. And of course, like clockwork, two minutes into the game, Josh Oduro has two fouls. And we're kind of all sitting, shaking our heads like, well, this was fun while it lasted. And then Mason hung around. And I mean, Kansas, give them credit. They made a run. They think they had 11-point lead at halftime. Mason kept fighting, though. I mean, the the, the whole game, I mean, Devontae gains, ticket gains. If you do do not know this guy's name yet, you need to learn his name. Because he is arguably the most fun guy to watch in the entire league. I mean, he played 36 minutes in this game. And every single minute he was on the floor, he's busting his butt, giving full effort, 15 points, 12 rebounds, nine defensive boards of those 12 boards. Also had a steal, also an assist and a block, one turnover, only three fouls against, I mean, he basically played the five for the first time in his career because Josh was, you know, in foul trouble for a lot of the game. And there was no one else of any size. I mean, Blake Jones played all the six minutes for Mason and the other two guys were, and everyone else on the team was a guard basically that was healthy. Um, and the fact that Mace was able to roll with such unique lineups and having combination of the guys that otherwise may never have seen the floor together, I think will really help this team as they move forward and they finally get to play their first A-10 game um, on here on MLK Day at GW, and the last of the 28 A-10 men's and women's teams to finally get a game in. <laughs>
0: You know, with, with Josh Oduro getting some limited minutes due to picking up two fouls, I mean, how does that improve Josh Oduro as a player too? I mean, obviously, you know, he's clearly the number one option. He's been the number one option on George Mason for a long time. But just like with a guy like Chuba Ohans on Fordham, even when you're the number one option, it gets tiring. And, you know, not only is it tiring for you and you might, you know, have a weaker performance, but then that's what teams look for and they're able to tailor their defense around that. So how does... Josh Rodura's teammates stepping up in the right moment help him as a player and help him kind of work the floor a lot more?
1: You know, I think it's a good situation ultimately for a coachable moment to see who you have and who can step up in those moments. I mean, as I said, we were all worried that Kansas was going to run away with this with 38 minutes to go in the game and Mason hung around for the, you know, all of those 38 minutes. I mean, Josh only played 24 minutes, but I think the most, and he never picked up another foul the rest of the game. Um, But I think the other thing that we really learned that was useful moving forward, Kim English put Josh Oduro back in the game in the first half with two fouls with, I believe, two or three minutes left in the half. And because Kansas was starting their run and he needed a spark. And Josh never picked up a foul. And that's one of those things, especially as a young coach like Kim English is, they often tend to be a little more conservative with, you know, they don't know the guys so well. They're not sure whether they can trust them or not in those situations. And for, for a duo to come in, not pick up a foul, play disciplined, I think was a big moment for this team because if and when they inevitably get in those types of situations, again, they know how they can operate and how they can, you know, face different types of lineups and be able to handle it with foul trouble of themselves.
0: Excellent. And so obviously you mentioned that game was played on January 1st. And they're they're playing on on, on Monday on, on the 17th against George Washington that's that's a pretty long pause and you know even though that is a long pause and they've got a pretty hefty part of their schedule right after that GW game they play GW on uh, on Monday and then go to Dayton on Saturday the next Saturday the 22nd followed by Saint Bonaventure on the 26th do you think this game against GW is a great way for them to kind of ease
1: back into conference play I mean I'm not sure there's a there's a I don't know if the word here is worst team or a better team uh, for them to have the first game against given GW is, is as much as the hate to say this by far the worst team in the Atlantic 10 right now. So from that same point, I don't think there's a better team that Mason could have a tune up game against. Um, I'm personally looking forward just getting to see them playing again. And for GW perspective, I mean, I, I got credentialed for this game. I've been a GW fan season ticket holder, whatever you want to call it for 23 seasons This will be the first time I will have gone to a GW game with no fans in the stands. And that's going to be really, really weird. But just excited for, you know, to see this game. The GW Mason games are always ones that I've loved going to because I always go with my father and, you know, grew up a GW fan. Now I'm a Mason student. I'm a senior. It's going to be the last time that Mason men play at the Smith Center while I'm a student. Thought I wasn't going to get to go once they booted the fans out, but happy I'm going to get to go as media. Um, So just really, really excited about this game.
0: That's awesome. You, you talk about that excitement. Uh, this this might be kind of a dumb question, but is there any kind of like term for you know among the fans that 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 they that they call these George Mason, uh, George Washington games like a battle of the Georges, uh, you know George on George. Anything like
1: that? It's had some different names over the years. Before Mason joined the Atlantic 10, it was at one point called the Battle of the Orange Line. Since then, they call it the Revolutionary Rivalry. There was actually a trophy at one point. I've not seen it in five years. I have no idea what happened to it. But It was a little tri-corner hat trophy with both schools' logos on it. Uh, But yeah, the Revolutionary Rivalry.
0: Oh, because George Mason also
1: was a signer of the Declaration, right, if I'm not mistaken? He was a Virginia delegate, I think. I don't believe he signed the Declaration, but he... He was Virginia's Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, I want to say. I should know this. It's the namesake of my school, but it's fine. <laughs> all
0: right. Well, you know what? A-10 talk, great history lessons and great basketball discussion. <laughs> and speaking of long COVID pauses, I think uh, if I could have my soapbox for a little bit, I would like By to, all means. Time to you know kind of gush about Fordham basketball. Uh, as some of you might know from uh, the, the nearly thousand word game recap I put on A-10 talk, uh, this Thursday, probably my longest, you know, game recap I've ever written for the site. And I probably still could have written more because there was so much to talk about. Uh, Fordham has gone two, is now 2-0 and oh in uh, A-10 conference play on the men's side for the first time ever since joining the conference in 1992. You know, that's one of those stats that when I first heard it, I was like, oh man, that's, first of all, glad to hear, but it's one of those things where it's like, oh, that means Fordham has just been so irrelevant in this conference for so long. But, you know, I, have, I had a lot of people uh, on Twitter uh, quoting my tweet today and saying that, you know, St. Louis has j- has only done that three times uh, their entire time in the A-10. So I, I think it's less about uh, a testament to how rough Fordham basketball has been on the men's side for so long and more of a testament to how tough this conference is and how close everyone is to each other. That being said, a great win for Fordham, uh, you know, coming off coming off that long pause, there was still there's still a lot of things to fix in that Fordham squad. The number one problem, in my opinion, being three-point shooting. They just really gotta they just gotta get in the gym and just hit shoot a thousand shots every day because they get set up for these plays and they look really good, but they're just not hitting. You know, they're they're coming off the backboard. They're they're you know. Darius Quisenberry just can't be the guy to shoot threes every single time. You need to, you know, you know, diversify the roster a bit more. Um, they looked a bit shaky on defense in the beginning, but they cleaned that up. Uh, but overall, I think it was a great team win. And I think, you know, I think these guys are just really excited to play basketball. I mean, Coach Neptune has talked about it. You know, when, you, when, when we asked him in the postgame press conference yesterday about, you know, being the first Fordham team to, uh, to go to an own conference play. said that's not really something that they're worried that they were really focusing on uh and as great as it is it's not something that's going to help them you know keep getting more wins this season because as you know this is his first year at Fordham there's a lot of incoming transfer students as their first year at Fordham so it's not really something the 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 weight of Fordham's past records is not really something that they carry on their shoulders and I think that's I think that's a great thing, honestly, because it's it's looking towards the future and looking towards making Fordham basketball a much better program. Their game on Saturday against St. Louis might be a bit tougher. I don't I don't know what their chances are going three and zero in conference play look like, but you know I think the way the A10 has been uh, rolling out this year, you know I think anything can happen. Um, another uh, thing about Fordham that I, I did not get to include in this article because I felt like you know I wanted to talk about the game more. Zach Riley has just joined the team Uh, for anyone who who was listening and following Fordham hoops. Zach Riley is a player from Australia who just committed to Fordham over the summer, but he has just been able to join the team recently uh, due a, to, you know, Australia's school year operating on a, on a bit different schedule than America, you know, obviously because I don't know the Southern hemisphere things are different seasons are different or whatever. So he had that kind of halting his time and coming to Fordham uh, as well as, you know, he, he had COVID, I think at one point early on in January, coach Neptune said that. So, you know, it's been a tough time getting him able to come to the team, but I think Fordham fans and and they're still saying that they might even redshirt him this year uh, considering that they've already got a pretty set rotation. And they don't want to shake things up too much, especially because if you've got him here now, you've got five years worth of eligibility for him you know, in the future. So rather, rather hold on to them and continue to develop them. But I just think, I just think it's something to, to show that not only is Kyle Neptune working on making a solid team in this conference this year, but he's already making moves for Fordham's future in the short term and in the long term. So Fordham fans who have been, who've been having a tough time for a long time now, including myself, I think there are, there, there's a sunshine, a sunrise on the horizon. You know, I think, I think, things are really looking up for this program. So that's, that's my, that's my four to two cents. <laughs> for I love podcast. I love it. But, uh, so continuing on, you know, this weekend, you know, Fordham's taking on St. Louis on Saturday at two 30. Uh, we've got plenty of other great matchups, George Washington, George Mason, not playing until Monday, Daniel, what's the, what are the one or two biggest games that you'll be looking forward to this
1: weekend for a 10 play? Honestly, I was looking at the schedule earlier. I think the two biggest games are the two Friday night games. You got Bonna going against VCU, and you got Davidson at Richmond. Um, two very interesting games, I think, for the Bonnies especially. Yeah, their record's still there, and they're still in Joe Lenardi's next four out, so they're still within striking distance of the bubble. They got to start passing the eye test, though. They cannot afford another you know, stinker like they had against LaSalle. I know it was their first game back in a month. But the Bonnies, if they're going to continue to try to be a legitimate at-large contender, really could use this win against VCU. And the Rams, on the other hand, could get off to a 4-0 start in conference play, really put themselves in the driver's seat here, you know, to, to look into securing that double bye, you know, early on here. And then that second game, Davidson-Richmond, it's at Richmond, which, I mean, yes, the Spiders have, have really taken a nosedive here, I think, um, since the new year. But they're also still Richmond and, you know, it being in, you know, the Spiders home arena, I think, gives them a boost. I think they're going to be hungry. And Davidson has, yes, they they, they are 3-0 as well. I don't think they've their wins have been as impressive. I think that almost losing to UMass at home is a little concerning. I think this will be a really good test for Davidson here to kind of see where they're at and it would be really important for them also to, you know, pick up a road win, get to four 0 in conference play. If they can, that'll help their at large bit as well.
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I, I do agree that it's weird that I I, I feel like the best games this, this weekend were kind of front loaded onto Friday. Obviously you didn't know that the, the people who make these schedules didn't know that going into the season, but I gotta admit, that's probably one of my biggest gripes about A10 play so far this year. I don't know if I don't know if anybody listening at home or or Daniel, you would agree with me. But isn't it kind of frustrating when you're trying to get on a big Tuesday slate and
1: every single game is on at 7 p.m.? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially <laughs> well, last night, especially. I was at the Mesa Women's Games. There were six women's games happening. I forgot there were two men's games happening. I was like, what do you mean there's two games tonight? So there were eight games I was struggling to cover all at once while I was at one of them. It was crazy. I mean, but then again, I'm never going to complain again about having too much basketball after we had every team in the conference that felt like had COVID, so.
0: No, that's a great point. I mean, the more basketball, the better. But if I could, if I could, uh, you know, make one request to Commissioner Glade and, you know, all the athletic directors at – around the a10 if you could just space out your games better or give us some sort of a10 red zone you know (laughs) i mean i think i think there's a lot of people around a10 twitter that would that would that that would you know line up to pay for something like that myself included hey if you need a host to hop back and forth i mean me and daniel talk we're here we're here every week so just let us know but you know those, those are definitely going to be the biggest games this week. And honestly, you know, you say that, that this, this is probably Saint Bonaventure's last test possibly of the season to, to secure an at-large bid. But, you know, VCU going 4-0 and in conference play potentially, does that make them a possible at-large team? Or would they be sneaking into, you know, Joe Lunardi's bracketology, maybe the first four out or something like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think they're going to need some help. They're going to really need Syracuse to get their life together and make that a better win for them. It's really unfortunate that they they had two close losses to Baylor and UConn. I think they're in a much better position if they have one of those wins. That Wagner loss is going to still hold them back. But, I mean, look, VCU at the end of the day always controls their own destiny. I mean, if they beat – the VCU's next two games at Bona, home versus Davidson, they're both quad one wins, I believe, because it's a road game for Bona – I guess it'd be a quad, too, because bon is 114 in the net, I think. So maybe it's still... But even so, it's a good... It would be a good road win for them. And then they play Davidson not even a week later. So they get Davidson twice in the next three weeks. And the second one is a road game. You know, VCU's going to have some opportunities here to make a case for themselves. The disadvantage they're going to run into here is they're going to have a big gap of landmines after that. They're going to have Richmond, Duquesne, Mason, Fordham, Richmond again, Mason again, UMass, plus a game against rhode island in there all before they get the bonnies again and then finish with slew so there's a lot of landmines in there that they really want to go undefeated or maybe only lose one of them if they can absolutely help it to, if they're gonna try to make a case themselves but at the end of the day they can still win the A10 tournament and the whole thing's a moot point anyway so we'll just have to wait it'll be interesting to see what happens
0: yeah so big friday highly recommend you checking it out and you know of course, since that slate is a bit bunched up, get the dual screen set up and uh, you know get ready to camp out and watch a lot of eight ten hoops. So for our final segment of the night, uh, definitely want to talk about a lot of stuff that's been going on on the women's side, specifically with UMass basketball um, and their game against against VCU
1: uh,
0: the other night. You know, I feel like uh, we we've been talking about a lot of it UMass women's basketball this season, and it's kind of been the Sam Breen show. Uh, you know, she's she's no doubt what probably the best player in the conference best player on the on, on umass but uh sydney taylor 32 points against vcu in and in a big comeback win on uh, on a 10 talk uh nathan was sharing that video of 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 coach verity yeah. yeah very emotional after after the game uh you know how much does this how much does this win against vcu kind of encapsulate encapsulate uh umass's season so
1: far I mean, it's, I mean, I also want to set the stage here by saying VCU is a good team on the woman's side as well. Like this is not just some, you know, random Joe Slo team that they went on the road and beat. I mean, this VCU team is a very talented team, you know, almost had a win against North Carolina should have beaten South Florida as well. Had to really near misses this UMass team. I said it time and time again, but I don't think you can emphasize enough how special this team is. And I mean, Coach Verdi was very you upfront about the struggles that this team had. It sounded like majority of the team had COVID with some kind of nasty sounding symptoms. It sounded like. I mean, this team, this was not your traditional COVID positive. Ah, it sucks. We can't play basketball. They were in, you know, really not good health, all things considered. And then to be able to come back, not have full practices, you know, for a while, start with a road game at VCU. They got down early, and then they kind of won it going away in the fourth quarter. I mean, they, they, they just found another gear. And it was a night that Sam Breen didn't have her best performance and to have a girl like Sid Taylor, just be able to give you 30 points. Boy, does that make life easy when she's doing that? Yeah. 32 points,
0: six three pointers over the course of the game for her 13th game of the season in double figures. I mean, that's, that's a pretty impressive resume. All that, uh, all those stats, courtesy of mass live, by the way. Um, you know, to come to not only come back and then win that game by 12 points with everything that they've been going through, I mean, what, what's stopping them from winning the conference right now? Who, who's the biggest team that's in their way?
1: Probably right now, it's looking like it's Dayton. And they're going to go head-to-head with Dayton coming up on, I believe it's Wednesday. Yeah. But before they even get to Dayton, they got two games because they have all these games stacked on top of each other. They have at Richmond on Saturday – Monday, they're at Rhode Island, who's the other team, I think, that could give them a run for their money. We don't know what to expect from this Rhodey team. They're 11-3. They have some puzzling losses, but they just beat the ever-living snot out of GW on Wednesday night. Rhodey's going to be a tough out for UMass. And then two days later, again, UMass is going to travel back home and host Dayton. And talk about a gauntlet of a sky. Sc- I mean, three games in, in five days is bad enough to have two of the top four teams in the conference on that schedule in that time, we're going to really learn a lot about this medal of this. UMass. I mean, if UMass can even win two of those three, they're going to be in, in pretty good shape. I think the interesting thing too, that we finally for the first time got to see because UMass is not in first place in the standings because of their COVID pause They're you know, n- don't have the most wins that's Dayton right now at two and O they're the only two and O team UMass is in a string of teams that are one and O. We finally got to see where they are with their at large. So in their the newest bracketology from Charlie Cream, UMass is the first team out. Which Charlie Cream's never been great at what he does, so it's kind of a grain of <laughs> salt. But it's I think a good benchmark for where UMass is with their net ranking, with their resume as a whole, and they're going to get some you know uh, some more games against better net ranked teams like Ro- uh, sorry Rhode Island and Dayton in the next couple of days. So UMass can really help solidify their at-large position and nothing else, you know, in the next couple of days. And that will really be helpful for the conference to, you know, try to get two teams in here. So you mentioned uh, the fact that, that UMass is playing, th- uh, what did you say, three games in
0: five days? Yeah. That's, that's pretty insane. And I think, I think it's, a, uh, it's a pretty stark difference from last year. I mean, it's, it's an improvement on, on what we saw last year in some ways but it adds a whole new challenge for a lot of these teams while instead of, you know, losing losing a game. And then, you know, thinking it might get postponed where, where it just gets canceled. Uh, like for example, I don't think most teams had a single game that was postponed made up later on in the year last year, but now we're seeing a lot of teams, especially in the a 10 on both the men's and women's side, you know, really loading a ton of games in February, this, this, this February, I think is going to be a huge gauntlet for a lot of these teams. Uh, making their schedules look almost more like NBA teams and WNBA teams than than college teams. So with that change, do you see some of these teams, you know, possibly enacting some sort of NBA style load management? Could we see maybe a game at UMass women's game where they've got a long stretch where, you know, Sam Breen might sit, uh, you know, against a weaker opponent just to conserve her for a bigger
1: game. You know, it'll be interesting. I think, One of the things that the Atlantic 10 is trying to do, I don't know if folks have seen this in the news, the A-10 has applied for a waiver from the NCAA to be able to have redshirt players be able to play in a limited number of games if they're limited due to, if the team is limited roster-wise due to COVID constraints. So that'll be interesting to see if that goes forward or not. But it was interesting that the Atlantic 10 was the the conference in the country that was spearheading this. But you bring up an excellent point. Um, And especially if you're looking at the women's side, Yes, they play two less games because women play a 16-game season. The men play 18 games. But the women's season, by virtue of that, is a week shorter. So every time there's a postponement, which knock on wood, we hopefully won't have too many more. But it's only going to condense things further because the A-10 seems really committed to having this thing done, getting 16 games in for the women and 18 for the men, get them all in if they can. And so for the women, especially having one less week, you're going to have situations like what UMass is going to have to do now where they're just going to be forced to play a bunch of games. And so it is going to be interesting, especially a team like UMass that doesn't play a ton of their bench. I mean, the truly interesting thing would be if bon and men found themselves in that situation where they what had three total bench minutes the other night. You know, that's, a you know, this is a situation where the healthier egg you can be is always going to help you, but B, if you could just have depth in which, you know, uh, uh, going back to what we talked about earlier with Mason and Kansas, Mason having eight players in that game, could be something that's beneficial for them later down the road if god forbid they have another covid break or whatever happens where they're missing guys and you know injuries always happen too i fear we're going to see a little bit more injuries than usual with a condensed schedule but as you said anything could happen and teams are going to have to adapt on the fly to figure out what's going to happen yeah a lot a lot of interesting
0: stuff and i i i was unaware of that that petition that the a10 made to the ncaa in terms of redshirt players and honestly i mean this this might just be coming from me as as you know a college basketball nerd but the only thing that that i can think would be coming out of that is just a statistician's nightmare you know i think we've already seen some problems with the this extended eligibility not really problems per se but just kind of you know interesting phenomenon where you know a lot of players might be this might be helping a lot of players who are, who are really gunning for, you know, high career totals like career points and stuff uh, because they do have that extra year of playing time. So for them to be able to, you know, come on a game, Oh, I'm a red shirt. Come back. Oh, I'm a red shirt. In in 10 to 20 years, we're going to see, we're going to see stats brought up on, on, on sports center, something like that with just mounds upon mounds of asterisks. And you know what? I'm here for it. I'm here for it. But yeah. yeah this guy
1: had six years to get two thousand points or whatever like, yeah. yeah it's 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 gonna be it's the Grant golden phenomenon honestly yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know with all
0: those with all those statistical nightmares i think the only thing that comes out of it is is good basketball so if you're a fan of good basketball and want to keep watching good basketball and hearing about good basketball uh keep following us at the a10 talk podcast a10Talk.com, all of our social media is on Twitter. Uh, once again, I'm Sam Basil, joined by Daniel Frank, and we'll see you next time, guys.